Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. In today's episode, we continue our discussion about objects from history, 100 bloody objects. What gorgeous item do you have for us today, Jamie? Object number nine, Bacassa's crown, kleptokitsch, tyrants and their lack of taste. Power corrupts and absolute power absolutely corrupts taste. These men we'll discuss today had the undiluted resources of an entire country to play with and they managed to attire themselves as pimp overlords living in wedding cake castles or Dr. No Meglo lairs with the crass habits of teenage boys without any threat of parental sanction. It really is the truth that money can't buy you taste. That's right, Tom. There's always excess around tyrants because there's no one around to speak truth to power, to tell them that what they're wearing or what they're living in or what they're driving absolutely stinks. So they're just surrounded in the end by fawning and flattering courtiers. There's a famous sketch by Monty Python where rival courtiers are trying to get one up on the other, and one of them says to the king, uh, the, other, the other one says he resembles a stream of bat's piss, and the king is outraged and says, what do you mean? And the other guy goes, I mean that your majesty is like a shaft of gleaming golden light when all around is dark. And those are the sorts of people who surround absolute rulers. And if they don't say what that ruler wants to hear, they are quickly killed off and replaced. Well, we're going to start with baubles and bling. So who, for you, takes the crown? Well, African despots are very much up there. There are many others in the same category. But let's start with Bacassa, or Emperor Bacassa I, as he called himself. And his coronation in 1977 set a standard for really ghastly vulgarity. He had a carriage, he brought in French set designers, he wore a gem-studded crown, a lot of diamonds. The French Defence Ministry provided Mirage fighter jets to do overflights and flypasts, and the French army provided a battalion to guard it, but no one actually came to the wedding. So there Bacassa was in his Napoleonic carriage and his Napoleonic crown sitting on a two-ton throne that was covered in gold and, you know, everything else. And it was quite an affair. It cost about £10 million, bankrupted the country. And no overseas leader came, no African leader came. It was like being at your own party and blowing your party whistle with no one there to share it with you. Nobody came to his party, or poor old Bacassa. It's no surprise that Bacassa's diamonds ended up helping Giscard d'Estaing's presidential campaign in France. And that's really been the order of the day for a lot of French presidential elections. They seem to get dodgy diamonds from all manner of sub-Saharan African states. I'm amazed, given the sort of French influence, there wasn't actually a Paris parfumier turning up in the Central African Republic and producing a scent called Tyrant by Bacassa. 
It makes your flesh cruel, but you can smell really nice. Copyright that one. Yeah, excess. They had no, uh, there was nothing to hold them back. No, and you can see that all around the world in so many places. And I mean, look at Nazi Germany. It wasn't Hitler who had this excess. It was really someone like Hermann Goering, the Reich Marshal. When he got married, he had 20,000 troops out on the street. He was, he was like a Roman emperor. And he designed his own uniforms. He had hundreds of uniforms. His Reich Marshal one, he looked like a Ruritanian despot with a gem-studded baton, all in white with a lot of gold. He, at his Karanhala Palace that he converted from an original palace, it was stuffed full of so much looted art. And his winter balls were something that everyone wanted to go to. And he had to have several costume changes And he was known to walk around in fur coats, in kimonos with his nails painted and his face rouged. He wore Roman togas. He dressed as medieval archers. He had a selection of rings and uniforms, depending on his mood. And it reminds me of an absolute tyrant in Morocco, Moulay Ishmael, the sultan between the 1670s and 1720s, who changed his outfit depending on whether... He was going to kill someone that day. So if he wore yellow, you knew that it would end up blood spattered because he would then go and murder someone just for a laugh. Well, Goering was always uh, one of the Nazis in any of those war movies. He always has a different uniform to everyone else in the picture. Yes, I mean, he was that sort of character and he, he just loved dressing up. I and mean, that was one of his, his great... That and stealing art was just one of, his, one of his great things. But it isn't a modern phenomenon, as you've mentioned already. This goes back to the time of the Nizam of Hyderabad and, and the Ottoman Empire and, and uh, various other sultans. Well, people love baubles and people love a sort of clash of clothing. I mean, no one told the Persian kings of the 5th century BC that they shouldn't wear platform shoes. So apart from platform shoes, they were just covered in jewels. And if you look at the Maharajas, you can see from things like the Altani collection today that the extravagance and the wealth and the Nizams of Hyderabad had so much money, so many diamonds, so many other precious stones that they even uh, covered their corridors and halls in a carpet of pearls. You walked on pearls because they could afford to throw them away. They, they were just so plentiful. And he was the fellow who had uh, the Jacob diamond and used it as a paperweight. Yes, the, 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 the last Nizams did exactly that. Uh, that was the fifth largest diamond in the world because, of course, the first four ended up with uh, the British royals. Uh, so, hurrah. <laughs> well, as our, our dear monarch uh, would say, there's no accounting for taste. Well, I wouldn't like to put words in her mouth, but I believe she had some quite firm views on these things. Yes, and it's fascinating that the, the people over here, because of the sort of British restraint, there was some old duke and someone was asking quite normally about his amazing art collection. And he said, I don't like people asking me about my things. <laughs> but, but, you know, the Maharajas and others didn't mind people asking at all because what they wanted to do was project their wealth, project their power. And having a lot of bling, wearing incredible robes, surrounding themselves with courtiers and slaves was really part of the deal. Yes, and in addition to that, it was very important for them to have uh, grandiose titles. 
Oh, the titles are absolutely fantastic. And actually, the more crackpot and tin pot the dictators of today, the, the more extreme their titles. But, uh, you know, among the best, and he deserved it because he was head of a huge empire, was Suleiman the Magnificent, the 16th century Sultan of Turkey. His titles included Vice Regent of God on Earth, Emperor of the West and the East, Lord of the Lords of the Earth, and possessor of men's necks. You can't do better than that, really. Possessor of men's necks, that's a nice one, yeah. Well, and what about coming back to Africa and Bokassa? He had a, a couple of uh, modest titles. Yeah, go for it, Tom. Yeah, well, uh, he, he, was, uh, he called himself, or maybe his people did call him, uh, the Apostle of Peace and Servant of Jesus Christ, and Emperor and Marshal of Central Africa, Saviour of the Republic, Man of Steel, Unparalleled Engineer. He's keeping his hand in. Artist and guide of Central Africa and man made to create nations. And he didn't last very long and was then ousted a couple of years after his coronation. Yeah. What a waste. Poor old Bukasa. Amin, of course, was another famous, famous African despot. Yes, Idi Amin Dada had quite a few titles to raise the eyebrows. Apart from King of Scotland and Big Daddy, I think he called himself Lords of all the Beasts of the Earth and the Fishes of the Sea. And Conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general, and Uganda in particular. And let's face it, he gave himself the CBE, the Conqueror of the British Empire. And he gave himself the VC, but he called it the Victorious Cross. <laughs> yes, and he was covered in a lot of bling. But that's what these people do. In fact, the one thing about Idi Amin that I remember was that he he complained that human flesh tasted too salty. I think Big Daddy's a bit rich. I seem to remember Big Daddy fighting giant haystacks. And Mick McManus, the other one. Yes, well, I was taught boxing by Jackie Palo, the wrestler from that era. <laughs> it was the only thing we were allowed to watch on telly at certain times, wasn't it? In those days when there was very select viewing. I was going to say, well, it was the only thing on telly, apart from Andy Pandy. <laughs> yeah, very dodgy. <laughs> okay, who took the biscuit when it came to Monica's? Oh, that's got to be Mobutu uh, of Congo. Um, Zaire, as it is today. Yes, the all-powerful warrior who, because of his endurance and inflexible will to win, will go from conquest to conquest, leaving fire in his wake. It's fantastic, isn't it? I think anyone who sets himself up as father of the nation and then has no one to sort of channel them or keep them at bay or somehow sort of push them in the right direction or democracy is going to get out of control and start acquiring titles. And that's what happens. Well, I mean, the Romans knew that with their, you know, slave whispering in the ear when the emperor or whoever it was uh, went on a triumph and they had someone whispering in the ear, but that was kind of lost in the more present era. Well, because if you whisper in a tyrant's ear, you tend to be castrated or beheaded or both. Yeah, one, one and then the next. Yes. <laughs> well, the third element to the uh, baubles and bling really is this whole idea of self-promotion. Yes, and... One of the reasons is, as I said, that most of these people want to see themselves as father of the nation and the personification of the nation. So apart from the grandeur and the grandiose titles, they want to create an image. Obviously, with the Nazis, it was easier because it was on the mass scale of Lenny Riefenstahl's film, Triumph of the Will. You had the Nuremberg rallies, you had stormtroopers, 
marching with flaming torches in the shape of a swastika. Apparently, when they filmed it with all those searchlights, they had to do the lighting very carefully because all the people marching were so fat that they had to they had to make them look slightly more presentable. Get them from the right angle. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> uh, there's certainly, uh, there seems to be a recurring theme also in ghastly desks, huge, shiny desks, which uh, these ty- tyrants like to sit behind and look important. Yes, and certainly there's sort of tyrants from Eastern Europe uh, and from the sort of Balkans and that sort of area. And Mussolini, of course, during his period in power, they all wanted large desks because they wanted to look businesslike. They wanted to have a large desk to suggest they had a huge workload, that they were looking after their nation and their people. What Mussolini did on his desk is really his his business and no one else's. But it, it's amazing how from that era that large desks impress. I remember my father telling me that back in the 20s when he was in New York, he was dragged into this Ponzi scheme and skimmed a lot of money by someone called the Swedish Match King, who later had a rather mysterious death in a French hotel, I think, in Paris. But the Swedish Match King had about 12 telephones on his desk, and this was just before the Wall Street crash of 29. And that was really impressive, and I think that's what conned my father. So you can see why these despots as well want to come across as being businesslike, having huge offices and huge desks. I'm going to get some more telephones. It's got to be the thing. Plainly. And, I mean, Putin, he still has his, uh, has his ability to uh, big it up. Well, he's up there because, again, he wants to look like the father of the nation. And because he's such a diminutive little man, he's desperate to look butch. And there he is riding a horse bareback and with his shirt off, uh, fishing uh, or wrestling with a bear or flying in a microlight with geese. Playing hockey. Well, the great thing about playing hockey, uh, ice hockey, that he was uh, he was smashed to the ice rink and... Um, rather badly injured, I remember, the last time I heard about him playing hockey. But back in the 90s, my brother used to come back from Moscow doing business there, going, I'm dealing with a really strange little minister who's got a laugh like a little girl. And of course, that was Putin. But what my brother said was that every time you spoke to him, these bodyguards would fan out around you. So you were literally in the inner circle. And again, it's all about image. It's all about presentation and trying to cow the person you're dealing with or the population you're dealing with, of course. Again, no one's going to tell you. You look an absolute fright, whether it's Mussolini's fez or Kimmel Jung's pudding bowl haircut. No one's going to tell you. This is absurd. Well, it's it's a trope or a cliche, isn't it? But I mean, how many times stretching from Napoleon through to Tito and Putin... They're not very big, these people. No, but let's not go on to little people with a chip on their shoulder. There, <laughs> there's so many out there. And I've always said the only people I've ever had trouble with in my life are tiny people. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, there goes our tiny people readership. <laughs> Galloping on, we come to toys and hobbies. Yes, Tom, and just like the baubles and bling. Quite often, not only does it show the personal tastes or tastelessness of the tyrant, but they also show the the sort of range of things in which they're involved and that they're interested in. I mean, the drug dealer Escobar, 
had a bullring and a go-kart track, whereas someone like Tipu Sultan, uh, back in the 18th century, before he was defeated by Wellington, uh, ended up with things like a clockwork tiger that pretended to eat a British soldier. Uh, Then you get Idi Amin, who had an amphibious car. And one of his sons said, well, he's not just a tyrant that the people think he is. He's also a man of practical jokes and laughter because he used to drive his mistresses in the car towards the lake while they were screaming and terrified that they were going to drown and go straight into the lake in this amphibious car. So that's his particular taste, his particular joy. If you take someone like Saddam Hussein, well, everyone knows he had a 100 palaces and they were just deeply vulgar and awful and over the top. And he majored in having uh, various Kalashnikovs made from gold or studded with gems. I know someone who has one of Saddam's Kalashnikovs that was given to a local governor for putting down an uprising with great brutality. And it's basically embellished with mother of pearl and it's absolutely gopping and uh, terrible of well course. no names no pack drill there i won't mention the name <laughs> but you know saddam hussein had a palm tree made from crystal he had a quran written in his own blood apparently he gave liters and liters of his own blood over several years for that little project then you get again someone like Moulay Ishmael of Morocco, who was always over the top, who had a chariot that was pulled by his eunuchs and wives. So everyone has their trait and their hobby. You love Moulay, don't you? He just comes up time and again. Uh, Moulay never disappoints because he was so tyrannical and so unbelievably over the top. He puts everyone else in the shade. And one of the things about these uh, tyrants and their hobbies is they have the right to kill. And they do it with great aplomb. Again, with Moulay Ishmael, uh, as I said, he was between the 1670s and 1720s. He's the longest reigning sultan of Morocco, 55 years in power. He was a total psychopath. He, like other tyrants, had his own specialist guard. He had a black guard called the Bukhari, in the same way that the Ottomans had their Janissary shock troops, or the Romans had their Praetorian guard, or... Gaddafi in Libya had his female guards. They all have their own little coterie of of bodyguards and enforcers. But the Bukhari in Morocco were particularly vicious. And one of the things they would do was, it was called tossing. And they'd, on the orders of the sultan, they would just throw someone up in the air and make sure they landed on their head and broke their neck. They also sawed people in half for him. And apparently he had used to pardon people occasionally, but he had only pardoned them after they had been sawn in half, <laughs> which, allowed them, yes, which allowed them to be buried, actually, whereas they'd just be fed to wild dogs if they didn't. He would have people nailed by their hands to the doors of the city at uh, Meknes, then see them eaten by wild animals. He'd have people dragged to death behind a mule, backwards and forwards until they were in pieces. He'd have them dismembered in front of them. Apparently, he had a special sign for the type of execution he wanted. If he wanted someone's head cut off, he'd look at them and then he'd drop his head into his neck and then pop it up again. And that was the signal to cut his head off. He would... I, w- I wonder what the sign for tossing was. <laughs> <laughs> that is just quite unnecessary, Tom. <laughs> anyway, yeah, okay. he would also, in a similar vein, he would also twist his wrist <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. 
He would also twist his wrist to signal that he wanted someone... Stopping. <laughs> He'd also twist his wrist to signal that he wanted someone strangled. And one of his pet hobbies was to jump up on his horse and cut the head off the groom holding his stirrup just to practice his scimitar skills. So he was truly mad, truly megalomanic, truly psychopathic. And that's what you get from someone who is building a 300-mile palace. He wanted to build this palace, but we'll come on to that, uh, running from Meknes all the way to Marrakesh. But the palace he had anyway had 50 sub-palaces. So that's the person you're dealing with. There was an Ottoman sultan who was so mad, he wrote into the royal prerogative that he could fire his burn arrow and kill up to a dozen people a day from the battlements of the Topkapi Palace. So... It takes all sorts. Yeah, and the Ottomans, they, they loved having their deaf mutes lurking in dark corners, didn't they? Yes, they had a bunch of mutes who'd go around with silken bowstrings to strangle those that weren't liked or were out of favour. And there was so much politics going on in the Grand Seraglio of the uh, Turkish Ottomans. You know, we've talked about bodyguards and the sorts of courtiers. You know that you're rich. You know that you've... Uh, sort of slightly out of control in the emperor state when you have fawning courtiers called the keeper of the heron plumes, the custodian of the hummingbirds, the keeper of the turbans. I mean, there were so many lackeys and viziers and courtiers ready to kiss your butt. That's what being a tyrant is all about. And the right to kill goes along also with the right to have children to father. Certainly in the realm of Islamic tyrants, you're always going to get a harem. So Muley Ishmael had apparently up to 4,000 slaves in his harem. The Ottomans also had several thousand. Even in the 1860s, the Ottoman Sultan Abdul Aziz had 900 slave girls in his harem, guarded by 3,000 black eunuchs. So it was still going on late into the 19th century. And the viciousness was all round because the, um, you know, if one of those wives, one of those those slave girls kind of got to the top, one of the things she would do is make sure that uh, the other slave girl's offspring were bumped off. Yes, you'd either kill the offspring of the rival wives or you'd kill the rival wives. Uh, the, the principal wife of the Sultan of Morocco uh, often used to kill the other wives and have them cut into pieces. You know, then you'd get uh, uh, Muley Ishmael's successor, who was called Muley Abdullah. Uh, he specialised in pulling walls down on people uh, and also setting them alight. That was another favourite of his. He'd have them put down, uh, face down on the ground, and then a bonfire built on top of them. Uh, that was his little speciality. Yeah, so you had to stay. You had to try and stay friendly with the sultan and and with the slave girls. The other problem was that if you became sultan, you immediately had to kill off your brothers because they were rival power players, and you know could end up with their own courts and with their own regions falling in behind you. And that always happened with sultans. You always had rival brothers coming in to try and push you off the throne. So you ended up having to kill them. And they loved to look into the future if they could. So prophets and seers were part of the package. Oh, prophets and seers have always been part of the package. And you roll on to the Nazi era and Hitler and his bunch of gangsters were terribly into astrology and the occult and things like that. I mean, particularly people like Himmler, 
who, because of their belief in panspermia, the idea that the Aryan race had come from deep space and landed in the Nordic regions. They were always looking for things that would support their particular creed. If you move on to, say, the Marcos family in the Philippines, uh, Ferdinand Marcos was an absolute loon. He populated his palace with loads of prophets and seers and psychics and con artists. I mean, there was one tubby teenager called Bionic Boy, who was supposed to be able to read his palm and and read texts of, of books that were being studied in other rooms of the palace. And Bionic Boy, one of his specialities was he had a toy telephone with a, a string attached to the receiver, attached to the handset, and he'd pretend to speak to world leaders. And someone once wrote that he had walked into a room and seen Ferdinand Marcos sitting on the floor with this toy telephone, convinced that he was speaking to Henry Kissinger. Uh, And that's the level of insanity you're dealing with. Uh, Meanwhile, next door, Johnny Midnight was hanging out with Imelda. Well, Johnny Midnight was a failed DJ, and what he used to do was broadcast spiritual messages throughout the country. And he he would get everyone who was listening to... Uh, have a glass of water next to them and he would claim that he would make that water magic and uh, that it had health properties and uh, disease-killing properties by just through listening to what he was saying. So you always get these strange, weird occultists and spiritualists around leaders. And around the Marxists, of course, you also had thugs who were raiding houses and pinching grand pianos and art and everything else to put into the hotel chains owned by the Marcos family. But they were just thugs. And their susceptibility to this sort of thing perhaps came from quite often the um, the demise of their parents in in odd fashion, in, in, in terrible ways, which kind of left them without a sort of a a, a rudder. With Marcos, there was the terrible event of his father's death because his father, Mariano, had collaborated with the Japanese during the war, was convicted of it, and was executed by being torn to pieces by four water buffalo travelling in opposite directions, and his body parts were then hung from a tree. So... I think the sort of thuggishness and brutality that so many of these tyrants come from, I mean, if you think that people like Stalin, Gaddafi, uh, Saddam Hussein, a lot of them started as street fighters. A lot of them came from the alleyways and fought their way up, were cutthroats or gangsters. So they didn't really see anything wrong with stealing, thieving and general kleptomania. And murdering. It just became part of the way of things. And if you come from that sort of stock, that sort of background, who's going to tell you about taste? Whatever you do is really going to be about personal self-aggrandizement and promoting your image around the world. So no one's going to tell you what you should or should not do. You're just jumping on the hedonism treadmill. Well, yes, and you get extremely bored of the baubles and bling that you're surrounded by. You know, if you have a large yacht, you then want to get on to the next one. Uh, If you have a particular lion that you like, you're going to try and get a bigger pride of lions. And a lot of them actually ended up with all these strange hobbies. And, And apart from killing, fathering, having a zoo is really the ultimate. Again, Escobar had a zoo. 
so many of them had zoos. All the sultans had lion dens. Uh, some of them threw their slaves or the people who were out of favor to those lions. It's always said that Uday Hussein fed people to his lion. And this is what people do. Yeah, we know people who have the star sign Leo are always secretly quite pleased that that's the one they got given. Yeah, it's always good to be a far sign. <laughs> You're not a Leo, are you? No, I'm a Sagittarian. Oh. As uh, as Keith Richards said, he's a Sagittarian, a half man, half horse, which means I can crap anywhere I like. <laughs> well, I'm a crab. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Uh, go sideways. Uh, then there was Fidel Castro, who, like all good communists, had his own private island, Pleasure Island. And on that island, he actually had a turtle farm, which is a bit specialist, I guess. And a Not dolph- if you like turtle soup. <laughs> Well, that's true. Actually, British seafarers used to collect giant turtles and just stack them up on the deck. It was like a sort of giant smorgasbord uh, on long journeys. It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, poor turtles. And they were kept alive, which is even awful, more awful. Yes, I'm sure. Some fresh meat. Yes. But anyway, so he had a turtle farm and he also had a dolphinarium. So he, he obviously liked sea life. Escobar had a zoo as well with all sorts of exotic animals. But that's what you get when you're a billionaire drug dealer. Back to my old friend, the psychopath Mule Ishmael. It was horses that were his thing, and he had a stable a mile long and apparently had up to 12,000 beautifully looked after horses with two or three people looking after just a couple of horses. I mean, But when you've got an unlimited number of slaves, really, to hand, then you can have stables that size. Hermann Goering was on a slightly smaller level because as Reich Jägermeister, he was terribly into hunting and conservation, actually. And at Karenhalle, he had a herd of bison uh, that he loved. Yet again getting it slightly wrong. I mean, we like a deer park with a few elegant deer, but, you know, he had to go one step bigger and ruin it by having bison. Yes, well, as we've already gathered, he had no taste. He had no taste. No. I love, there's a great picture of, of Tito, who uh, is sitting in his in his room surrounded by stuffed animals, uh, showing that he's the sort of alpha male, the fighter, with his dead rare beasts surrounding him, and, and a devoted Alsatian looking in the corner an action man's dog, and the dog's looking, I think, perhaps slightly concerned when his turn will be to visit the taxidermist. Yes, probably end up on that large desk, <laughs> the usual tyrant desk. Yeah, Maggie's not that keen on Alsatian, so, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> ambivalent about that one. Oh, and lastly, aircrafts and yachts. They are required by every tyrant. Yes, they are, but none of them can compete with the Royal Yacht Britannia, when she sailed into Sydney Harbour or into Cape Town. The problem with tyrants is that they always want a larger yacht. They always want more aircraft. I remember, actually, when when I was in France one time and there were two enormous yachts parked in the bay and they both belonged to a couple of Silicon Valley uh, billionaires. And the deal is that you really want to be the yacht in front when you're parked up. And so... Uh, the evening, the two yachts came in and one guy got his in front of the others in the prime position. But in the morning, the wind had changed direction by 180 degrees. So he woke up to fate, find himself facing the rear end of his rival. Competition is an absolute killer. And if you 
take someone like Escobar, who had his zoos and his bullring and everything else. I mean, he owned so many yachts. He over 30 yachts. He had his own submarine. He had over 140 aircraft. And in fact, over the archway of his Hacienda Mapoles in Colombia, he actually put the first plane he ever did a drug deal in. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I would have done that, actually. That, that really is fantastic. Well, you would have been an appalling tyrant, there's no doubt about it. I like to think so. I flatter myself. But I would be quite benevolent as well. Putin has an Aleutian 96, and personally, I would never choose to fly on a Russian aircraft because the engines are always terrible, as I've pointed out in other podcasts. But he does have a £47,000 loo installed on it, so he can't really complain. Well, with a loo that heavy, I'm surprised the aeroplane can get up in the air. And with engines that crap, I'm amazed it doesn't land on the ground very quickly with him sitting on it. I used to go to to Havana on those old Russian aeroplanes and they were quite alarming. But at least you could smoke a cigar while you were travelling along. They are absolutely terrifying. But it's not just aircraft, it's also locomotives because Hermann Goering, another of our old friends here, he had a model train set in his garden, would entertain his guests and would have German model aircraft on wires attacking the train. So he loved that. But he actually had his own private train as well, Asia, in which he travelled about Europe, looting at will. That train had everything on it. Among all the carriages, which included a barber's shop and a cinema and things like that, it also had a flat car with his favourite French, German and American automobiles on it, including his six-wheeled Mercedes convertible. And there were two carriages that had ak-ak guns in them as well. But it was all done up in pink with cupids, and he would just loot art around the place. And as we know, his art collection, like so many other tyrants, was massive. And one of the things he ended up with at the end of the war were 30 crates of looted treasures from Herculaneum and Pompeii, including the much revered Venus of Praxiteles, which just vanished after he removed all his art in the final closing stages of the war from his palace Karenhalla. So a lot of that looted art has never been found. No doubt it's sitting in some tyrant's office today. I'm sure it is. Okay. The last part of this talk is about palaces and playgrounds and what some of our tyrants consider the height of taste. Most of the time, our tyrants get it horribly wrong, but one of the largest palaces in the world, the Hermitage, goes against this trend. Well, it probably goes against the trend because it was the Tsar desperately trying to lean towards Europe. So its massive Rococo style is not one that offends sort of Western eyes. It fits in very well, in spite of the scale. I mean, it is massive. It's uh, almost 184,000 square metres. It's just incredible, the scale. 117 staircases, over 1,000 rooms, uh, a Malachite room with 20,000 tons of malachite in it. I mean, if you see one of the presents to the British royal family, it's basically an urn made from malachite. That's just one urn. I mean, we're talking about an entire reception room made from it. It's it's just fantastic. It's one of my favourite places, actually. And um, when, when, you know, when you're thinking, oh, shall I have six or eight people to dinner? Can I get them around the table? 
in the Hermitage, there's a table that can seat a thousand. The reception rooms can take ten thousand people. So it's an incredible scale. Do you think that when the um, the Tsar and the, the Tsarina were having dinner on their own, they sat at either end of the table <laughs> with a megaphone or a telephone? <laughs> yeah. The other thing that's incredible about the palace is that all the rooms are heated, so you can get through a Russian winter and still have. Uh, orangeries and potted plants and everything else thriving in that interior. It's not, I mean, the fact that Britain couldn't even heat a stately home (laughs) speaks volumes. Yeah, that's what kept us tough. Well, that's right. Only having one bathroom. In contrast to the glories of the Hermitage, you then have the Turks. Yes, and the Dolmabachi Palace, which I have to say is quite the most dreadful place I've ever visited in my life in terms of taste. Uh, I mean, it's euphemistically called a synthesis of styles. It's just a dog's dinner. It's just quite disgusting. Uh, It's Victoriana meets Persia. And you go and there isn't a single nice painting. It's basically a, a rather substandard English painter who's been brought in to paint black and white cows on the walls. You have Baccarat crystal banisters on the main staircase. You have the largest chandelier in the world, which is bohemian crystal, which weighs four and a half tons, has 750 lamps on it. It's large enough to appall, but too small to over-impress. It looks like the inside of an Indian restaurant from the 1970s, frankly. And it's fascinating that the Russians gave a present to the Sultan in the mid-19th century when it was built. And that present was two bearskin rugs. You'd think that the Russians could have spared a bauble or two, but no, two bearskin rugs were all that were available at the time, it appears. A couple of sale items from Habitat, perhaps. But if you want to see bad taste, go to that palace. And one of the problems with the Ottoman Empire at the time, is that there was no great jewel cutting. It, the, they produced jewels that weren't properly faceted. So at the top copy, for example, you'll see emeralds the size of your fist, but they just look like balls of snot, frankly. They just are so unattractive and so unappealing. I suppose it's a different style. It's a different way of doing things. And people called it eclectic, but it really just is a mess. The Pentagon is supposed to be the biggest building in the world. And the second biggest building is... Ceausescu's Palace. Mm. And apparently Ceausescu's Palace is the heaviest building in the world. I think it comes in at something like four and a half million tonnes. And again, like the Dolmabachi, it's it's just a mess. It's that sort of Soviet era, social realism meets neoclassical it's about 20 stories high or more in places, and it's just a hideous mess. It grew out of the sort of mindset of a peasant who made it to the top, a street fighter who made it to the top. Ceausescu and his wife had absolutely no taste at all. It's always said that that couple were the least popular ever to have stayed at Buckingham Palace. Yeah, I think that it was said that they were. the Queen was concerned that... Uh, they might pocket a few items from the bedroom. So I imagine they put the sort of the, the non-essential pens and p- paper paperweights in their bedroom. Yes. Or so everything was screwed down. Well, I should think Ceausescu and his wife still got away with a bathrobe or two. Yeah. But the, the palace itself is absolutely hideous. And 
it, it just reflects the style of that period and a tyrant who had no taste. Apparently, the, there were so many bathrooms in it, which is quite odd. It's always been commented that they must have been addicted to personal hygiene. The, the bars are fitted out with all manner of fittings and attachments and shower heads and things like that. Uh, someone once said they, they, they probably discovered the enema. On we get. Well, and of course, the, the master of palaces, Saddam Hussein, he had a hundred palaces, and yet he slept in a hovel at night. Well, I think people tend to go back to their roots. And also, firstly, that's where he felt comfortable. And secondly, I think if you're a dictator, one of the problems is you always think there's going to be a palace coup. You always think you're going to be overthrown or assassinated. So not only do you need a double, you also need to hide in a tiny chamber far away from all the bling and the balls. Well, we all know what happened to Saddam Hussein. And to Ceausescu and to so many other tyrants. I think the great thing about tyrants is that so many of them have no understanding of their own mortality or that one day their statues are going to lie in rubble on the earth like Ozymandias. But talking of Ozymandias and clay feet, we must include a little mention of Putin's palace, the resident at Cape Idikopas. What do you think of that, Jamie? <laughs> Not a lot, by the sound of it. It's pretty, it's pretty bloody ugly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. It's pretty bloody ugly. And it's really the private manifestation of the public face of a pretty ugly regime. It's really grubby. And when you see what's in the, the, the residence there... It's really quite strange. There's a tasting room. It should be called a tastelessness room, I think, instead. Lack of taste room. Yeah, yeah lack of taste room. It's set in 74 acres. It overlooks the Black Sea. Apparently, the dance room has a pole on it, so you can just imagine who they bring in for that. There's an aqua discotheque room. But what I love most about it is that after spending about $1.3 billion on it, it had to be rejigged because it was suffering from mould. Yeah, I know. It's just typical, isn't it? Cutting corners. It's what all those regimes end up doing. Yeah, this uh, hideous building or palace complex includes uh, Arboretum, a greenhouse, helipad, a church. I don't suppose that'll save his soul. An ice palace, amphitheatre, a tea house, a gas station. That's actually quite useful. I mean, you know, I, I once went to stay with someone where I got my gas tank, my car filled up with gas and that was a very, that felt great, leaving on a Sunday with a full tank of gas. And, and Putin would come and say goodbye to you after tending his tomatoes in the greenhouse. It might be the big goodbye. It's quite a warming <laughs> scene. Yeah. But I think there are tunnels there as well and into the mountain. Yeah, nearby. well, the, tasteless, uh, the, the tastelessness room, isn't that in the tunnel? Yes, I think it is. I mean, it's, it's just mind-blowing, really, with the sort of things that Putin and his team get up to. I know. Yeah, I, I predict a sticky end one day. OK, Jamie, before we round it up, do we have a postscript for our tyrants? Yes, we do, Tom. But it's not about a tyrant. We're going to return home to England here because I want to mention George IV, Prinny, the Prince Regent, as he once was, because his tastes were eclectic and flamboyant. He built up the royal collection, loved art, and we can thank him today for the Brighton Pavilion, for the way the quadrangle looks at Windsor Castle. 
and for the interior of Buckingham Palace, because much of that came from Carlton House, his, his house just off the Mall. His tastes went from theatrical to excessive, but all seemed to be contained in a rather wonderful Regency fashion. And there's one sculpture in particular that I want to focus on, the fountain nymph that he acquired in 1819 was installed in Carlton House in the conservatory there. It's a very beautiful sculpture, but because it's lying down, because she's semi-dressed, and because all his friends were so lascivious and drunk and out of control, they kept on trying to lie down next to it or carouse with her and fondle her and everything else. And so quite soon after he acquired her, he then had to commission the making of special railings to go around her to protect her. So George IV and the Fountain Nymph, that's what we're going out with today in the postscript. The exception that proves the rule, and I suppose George IV never had the power to lop somebody's head off if he didn't agree with them or they didn't agree with him. No, but he did have excessive tastes. He was a gambler, and he liked collecting art, and he almost bankrupted the country with some of his spending. In fact, if you look at the crown jewels at the time, it's quite interesting that what there are are frames of crowns, and he simply hired the jewels to go in it, unlike the crown jewels that are there today. Thank you, Jamie. Well, klepto tyrants and their lack of taste, what a glorious collection of monsters you've given us today. Who knows, there might be a proto-dictator out there listening to this podcast and thinking, you know what, I'm going to give up my plans to be Caligula 2.0 and become an accountant. Well done, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton. His name is James Jackson. You can view images relating to each podcast on our Bloody Violent History Instagram account and on our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Good luck.